it's really interesting because this is something that's very much applied and asked towards sex workers rather than other forms of work. Whereas I think that there's lots of jobs that the only reason that people would possibly choose to do them is so that they can survive and feed their family. Um, Check out Alfreda. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, like, I worked <laughs> in the hospital for three years, and there's no way I wasn't doing that for any reason other than to pay my rent. Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today. It's a political podcast where we chat about issues affecting Kiwis. Cases of COVID-19 to report in managed isolation in New Zealand. We talk to Kiwis from all sides of the political aisle. What has the government delivered? Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Steve O'Ely, and we hope you enjoy our show. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pod Defend New Zealand. I really appreciate the support. In this month's episode, we interview Peyton Bond. She's a PhD student at the University of Otago, doing a thesis on factors impacting the workplace experience of sex workers in New Zealand. It's a bit of a more controversial topic, but I definitely found the conversation thought-provoking. So Peyton, thanks for coming on Pod Defend New Zealand. If you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Totally. Um, so I am originally from the US, from Virginia, so a bit underneath DC. And I also have a politics background, actually. So I studied undergrad at the University of Virginia, and I did leadership and public policy there. Basically moved to Australia because I didn't want to go into consulting. That's what everybody was doing. And I still don't really know what consulting is. <laughs> so <laughs> despite all my friends doing it. So, so what did you say your undergrad degree was? Uh, was it politics? We, or? So it's leadership and public policy. So it's kind of like a specialist school within humanities, which is interesting, but it wasn't quite me. Uh, so I moved to Australia, then I moved to Dunedin and did a master's of politics at Otago. And that's when I started looking into sex work governance and doing that sort of research, which led to my transition into the gender studies department. I basically followed a really excellent supervisor to the gender studies department, and I love it. I wish that I'd been doing gender studies the entire time. It's just, it's so enveloping of all of the humanities. So just to go back a step, what did you say it was you were studying um, in Dunedin when you first uh, moved across? So my first thing was the Masters of Politics, which is just a one-year coursework. So we had um, like political theory, like methodologies, global politics sort of classes, but we also had to do a dissertation of our own um, kind of devising. And I had written some really misguided essays about sex work governance in my undergrad based on what I thought was like good research at the time, but it was not. And I looked a bit into New Zealand's policy model and New Zealand basically has not ground not groundbreaking is kind of the wrong word because it's been around since 2003 but it's definitely world leading because it was the first country in the world to pass decriminalization which is widely accepted as the best practice model so once I started finding out about that and finding about the New Zealand sex workers collective and just you know doing a bit bit old, big old literature review I realized that there wasn't a lot of um, research on Dunedin specifically so I did kind of a small qualitative study in Dunedin for my master's project about sex workers' experience after decriminalization in Dunedin, which moved to what's now a larger project for my PhD, uh, where I'm looking at indoor sex work across New Zealand and what different factors are impacting their workplace. Yeah. 
So before we go into the sort of details of that, which is um, the, the, the main reason for the conversation, what drew, drew your interest on the, the sex work? Was it sort of like, did, it, did you just go down a rabbit hole or was it something that you've always had an interest in? So I've always had an interest in kind of human rights perspectives around politics, which I think originally was looking at more global politics. But as I've kind of gotten older and learned more, it's gotten more narrow in terms of more like local, regional um, specifically policy. So I guess I guess that's what kind of led me from politics to sex work governance is because I think so much for sex workers, like instead of being able to have just a normal workplace in so many countries, they're so wrapped up in like very political struggles. And that's why I found New Zealand so incredibly interesting as a workplace because it's pretty much the one the one space in the world where you can understand this workplace as something other than a constant political struggle just to not even be criminalized. So I thought um, it was decriminalized in the Netherlands. You know, obviously the most famous place in the world would be the red, uh, red light district in Amsterdam. Mm. Yeah, so the Netherlands has a different model from New Zealand. Some people, in my opinion, mistakenly, um, still kind of deem it, sorry, I didn't mean to, not you, <laughs> um, but some, some people involved with the law still call it decriminalized. Um, it is it is legalized, but it's, it's more of a legalized and government regulated entity, so it has more specific rules around the sex work industry than in New Zealand, where the industry, although there are some industry specific rules, um, for all intents and purposes, are regulated the same as any other work industry. Whereas in the Netherlands, there's there's different regulations, um, whether it's in terms of licensing or spaces where you can do sex work. Um, and I think there's actually been quite a large push in the Netherlands in the last year or two to move the red light district out of town because they didn't like it as a tourist attraction anymore. Yeah, I think I had heard something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's... The closest kind of model to New Zealand and actually is actually in New South Wales uh, in Australia. I think Sydney would probably have the highest concentration of sex workers, um, but New South Wales, um, Australia has a really interesting kind of state by state approach to sex work, um, where some places it's completely criminalized, some places it's legalized, but you have to be on a register, and then New South Wales is almost all the way criminalized, I mean, almost all the way decriminalized, except for street work has a bit more regulation than New Zealand does. For some of our more conservative listeners, I think if we, we take a step back and before we even talk about the decriminalizing or not of um, sex work, I guess some people would argue that no um, nobody would want to or would choose to go into sex work without there being some external pressure of some sort. What is, and I guess some of this might have been, you might have discovered some of this in the research that you have done, is what, what is the findings or what, um, is there something to counter what people might think? Because I, I guess the old school mentality would be, you know, anyone who's in sex work, even if they say, oh yeah, I've chosen, I've chosen this career, they might have had, you know, um, kind of been, not necessarily forced to go into sex work, but one thing led to another and they might, you know, in a, in a way... They've been sort of forced to go down that line. Do you have any research to go against that school of thinking? Well, it's really interesting because this is something that's very much applied and asked 
towards sex workers rather than other forms of work. Whereas I think that there's lots of jobs that the only reason that people would possibly choose to do them is so that they can survive and feed their family. Check out operator. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, <laughs> like I worked in the hospital for three years, and there's no way I wasn't doing that for any reason other than to pay my rent. But in that sort of situation, people people don't ever challenge my reasons for going into it. And I realized that there's a so there's a lot of you know sexual hangups, and yeah, especially. Um, with the more conservative, but there's also quite quite a large amount of um, feminist thought, radical feminist thought, that says that there's no way that sex work can possibly exist without being exploitative. So, so when you're looking at sex work as work, which I do, you find you find that sex workers are kind of put into this position where they have to adhere to one or the other of a binary. So they either have to say like, "Yes, I'm super empowered in what I do, and I love what I do." Or they have to kind of like admit that they're being exploited. Um, but there's so many people that exist in between that binary who are doing it because it has the most flexible hours, because it's the most money they can make as a student, as a single mother, um, as someone maybe with a disability that means that they can't be on their feet from nine to five or longer uh, working in hospitality or retail. So my kind of my main response to that sort of line of thought would be is that you don't have to agree with the institution of sex work. I don't necessarily even agree with the institution of, of work as, <laughs> as, as, as work as like being the only way that you can ensure your well-being and that of your family. I, I don't agree with that, but that's a whole other thing. But I think that even if you completely disagree, if you think that all sex work is bad all the time, I don't think that that means that you can say that they also don't deserve to have any sort of workers' rights. So I think, I think that you can hold both of those positions, although I'd prefer if you kept the sex work is always bad to yourself, because I think that sex workers would really prefer you just not talk about it, because they get enough shit um, and plenty of, plenty of stigma. But rather, I think it's important just to make sure that all workers have rights, as many rights as they can, um, in kind of a system that doesn't always give rights to the workers. Um, that's across all industries, not just the sex work industry. There's a lot of stigma associated with it being around sex um, and that sort of thing, but I can think of 20 or 50 jobs that I'd never want to do. Um, and there's some pretty miserable jobs that people do as immigrants coming to, to New Zealand to, um, you know, just to make a living. You're talk, talking like 16-hour days on a dairy farm. I mean, I've literally w witnessed it firsthand, like... Um, some Filipino immigrants doing 16-hour days on the dairy farm with half an hour for lunch and doing that 12 days on and two days off. And you can't tell me that um, that's, you know, I'm super passionate about this, so I'm 100% doing this because I love this job. That, I would say that they're 99.9% .9 doing it because it's going to um, provide for their family and give them um, financial security. Um, so it is a really good um, really good way of looking at it. Yeah, and I think I think there's kind of three main, I mean, factors, or actually I'd say two within this discussion, um, making sure that if there is a manager in the equation, that the manager respects those rights, which are very clearly outlined by the Prostitution Reform Act of 2003, and also making sure that workers know these rights. Um, like I mentioned, I worked in HOSPO, um, and I came from the U.S. where there's very different laws around work and such, and I had no idea about my rights. I hadn't even really heard of, of sick days. And do I 100% believe that my like labor was exploited while I was working in hospitality? Yeah, like I was on minimum wage doing 
tons of work for people who are making a lot of money, um, and I was not. And there's a lot of sex workers who used to work in like hospital and retail, and they were like, I, I was making no money over you know ten hour shifts, just like you, just like you said. And what you said about immigrants as well, I just want to quickly mention um, the Prostitution Reform Act doesn't fully decriminalize sex work. Um, Section 19 is actually, it's quite controversial because the New Zealand Sex Workers Collective didn't want it included. Um, but migrant workers are still criminalized. And this was a measure put in meant to kind of prevent sex trafficking. But what it has done is it's prevented migrant workers from, you know, having those same rights and being able to seek justice um, in the same ways that non-migrant workers are able to. It's also really interesting tension in that area because um, for someone who looks like me, I'm a white American, I would not be likely spotted, um, caught and deported for doing sex work um, because it's quite a racialized application of the law. Um, so when they say migrant sex workers are not thinking about, you know, white American women, they're thinking primarily of Asian migrants. And that's who they tend um, to look for and also to deport if they're found doing sex work. I think we can agree that, especially in New Zealand where we've actually decriminalised it, and um, that's how the law currently stands, people with more conservative perspectives are entitled to say they don't agree with sex work being decriminalised. But while we have it decriminalised and it's considered a place of work, any worker deserves rights. Can you sort of elaborate on that and tell us a bit about your research and what you've found? Yeah, so the way I designed it actually is where I'll start. Um, I looked at corporate workplace assessments, like if, just like, you know, big corporations, American corporations, whatever, um, to look and see how they assess job satisfaction. So I pulled a lot of my questions from there. Um, so things like, do you feel like the input that you put in equals the effort that you get out? Um, like, do you feel like you have job satisfaction? Uh, questions about culture. Um, questions about tenure, questions about flexibility. Um, so that's what I was looking for. But something, something that's really interesting about this particular workplace is that the workplace isn't, for these examples, hospital again. So when I went to work, I was always going to this, you know, I was going to the cafe, I was going to the bar, and that was my workplace. But when I'm asking questions um, of the workers that I interviewed, their, their workplace is so diverse because with it, even only within independent, I mean, not independent, even only within indoor workers in New Zealand, you're looking at some people going to, you know, super, um, like they're called, like high class agencies, um, you know, that are decked out, look like the best hotel you've ever seen. Um, or you have people that are working like in a brothel parlor, like a more, you know, um, a discreet, quiet place, you know. But then you also have independent workers who are either renting out fancy rooms or maybe they're working um, out of their bedroom. So the workplace, the physical workplace itself is incredibly difficult to pin down, but there still ha has been lots of factors that have come out um, that have been similar, and that's kind of what I'm working on right now is the coding. Um, but it links back to our discussion, what we were talking about earlier, is the number one thing that's come out, um, the number one thing they're coded for is money. It's like because people are doing it for money, like they're doing it <laughs> so that they can support themselves like people do any other job. I mean, that's... I would say that's been my number one finding, um, <laughs> which isn't surprising when I'm asking people about their work. And of course, there's been lots of different situations in terms of input and return. Independent workers have to put in a ton of work into their branding, whether it's on Twitter, social media, whatever, whereas people who work in agencies or brothels um, can even just like you know show up for an appointment and leave after. But yeah, I think that would be the main thing I'd really want to highlight is, because, is people are working because they 
need money because we all do if we want to buy food and pair of it <laughs> and yeah. so on. I mean, it's yeah. not particularly surprising, yeah. No, um, not at all. Going back to the, the money side of things, have you seen a sort of a little bit of a consistency in terms of roughly how much they're getting in an hour? Yeah, there is quite a large range. Um, and it's actually, it's actually something that I'm, I'm writing kind of a separate essay on right now. There is a certain group that is um, kind of able to charge the most, I think kind of more upwards of, um, I'd have to go back and look, but more in the range of like four to $600 an hour tends to be people who are um, white and slim and well-educated and tend to work it um, either independently or at kind of brothels that are considered more high class. But there's this like kind of, there's this really interesting um, privilege, like privilege level within, within um, kind of an already marginalized industry where some people, you know, if, if they're over size 12 um, or if they're not white, they're, they're not able to charge as much money. Is that based out of perception? Isn't they not, not able to charge as much money or is it just that maybe they don't feel like they can charge as much money or, or don't appreciate how much they could possibly charge? Um, I, think it's probably, I think it's probably a bit of both. There's some very distinct kind of like branding that I'm, I'm still kind of trying to tease out how to understand how, how people brand themselves um, or how brothels or agencies brand themselves in order to charge X amount of money and like maybe think of themselves as high class or the girl next door um, and they get different clientele. Um, so different clientele is looking for different, different kinds of people. It's really, it's incredibly interesting and I'm still trying to kind of um, think through kind of how to, how to phrase those findings um, because there are like a lot of interesting class and um, race disparities there. There is like a lot of like mirroring of society um, in this in this industry. You know, compared to being a checkout operator, where there's not much, um, you know, not much pressure on you, I feel like um, the general perception would be that sex workers should be getting paid. If we're going to criminal uh, decriminalize it, it should be um, they should be getting paid quite decent money the work that they're doing yeah absolutely and they're like I think kind of what you're um kind of what you're saying is about kind of the performance that's required of you kind of in a sex work setting which a lot of workers talked about as um, kind of a persona typically they have a different name um, and maybe a different look some people even said they talk differently um, act differently and that's like you know within the booking so it's actually a lot of um, emotional labor and you know getting people to open up to you and to feel comfortable to understand it as, as purely a, a sexual encounter um, is definitely a misunderstanding. There's a lot of work um, and a lot of people skill, customer service um, that goes into this, into this work. Uh, one of the questions that I asked uh, was, would you ever put this on a CV? Because it's, a, it's kind of a problem, um, even with sex work being decriminalized in New Zealand, is, is the, the stigma that prevents or the stigma that basically means that uh, sex workers will have a big gap in their CV. And most people have said no. There's been a couple, a couple people who said yes. But the follow-up question that I asked was, what would you like to tell a future employer about that you've learned from sex work um, but that you can't tell? And got like the, they're endless. Like, I mean, people who have worked in sex work are prepared for so many other jobs just because they've talked, they've been able to talk to people from all walks of life and especially with the independent workers, um, the branding and uh, filtering through people, it's just, it's an incredible amount. 
of, of quite emotional um, and mental labor. Some women have um, built their own websites. Um, some people just do Twitter, but you know, you still have to you have to keep people interested um, on like in an online community. So it's not like you can you know log in once a day and then log back out. You're constantly fielding messages and um, requests and friendships and networking. So how do people or how do we as a society change the perception of sex work in New Zealand? I think that paying, paying attention to what they're saying is really is really helpful um, in terms of destigmatizing. It's, it's difficult in terms of um, you know talking about this at a community level um, or within sex education um, because people kind of understand that as, as trying to recruit for sex workers when that's not when that's not what um, is being done. But I think like at the university level there's been um, I think some places in Britain because, because there are so many university students who are working you know part-time as sex workers um, all across the world, a sex workers rights organization set up just kind of a sex working as students um, help desk and there was a lot of backlash to that. But something like that is is really destigmatizing to people who are doing that um, to to get through university, um, to you know pay the rent like we've been talking about. So I think that would be a huge step. Um, just kind of you know listening to sex workers tell their stories. Um, I try to be mindful about because I've never worked in sex work myself. Um, so I try to be mindful to never. Kind of, or I try not to center myself, even though when you're doing research. Um, some, sometimes you do, and I, I hate that. I struggle with it a lot. I think I think that it's incredibly important when when you're um, discussing marginalized communities to listen to the marginalized communities. Um, and sex workers have historically had things written about them or research done on them, rather than their very capable voices <laughs> being heard and listened to. Yes, yeah, so I really, I, I try I try to continually check myself that I'm not you know kind of putting my voice. Um, above above sex workers um who have actually done the mahi but um but i i would say that the main main thing to reduce stigma is to just like to actually like listen to sex workers stories um and what they're saying and what they're saying they need as far as legislation goes um sex workers rights organizations have been calling for decriminalization since the 80s and it's it's not really happened in a lot of places and there's a lot of um a lot of <laughs> people who just still won't listen to that yeah, I think I think that in New Zealand, since it's been decriminalized since two thousand three, I I would like to think that the stigma has decreased some, just based on um, research that I've read from you know right after decriminalization to more current. Um, but it still has so far to go. Um, and I would just say, kind of listening and letting it be normalized um, as a, as a as a way to earn money um, in a in a world where it's difficult to earn enough money to live. I mean, I think people would find it fascinating how many students are um, are doing sex work because I guess part of the stigma would be as you sort of picture the, um, I would say that the majority of people that have a stigma about um, sex workers would be, you would picture it being basically um, people coming from abject poverty, really struggling to make ends meet. There's drug abuse and they've been, they've had domestic abuse growing up and then the last straw is they end up as a teenager going into sex work. But hearing that university students are doing it to pay the rent probably does help with that stigma. Um, for someone, you know, you mentioned about not many people putting it on their CV. Let's just imagine that um, you had a perfectly capable person going for a job. 
and on their CV they listed that they'd you know done sex work for the three years that they were at university. I guess a lot of bosses would instantly have some level of stigma to that. Um, what would be something that you would say to bosses to kind of help them change their perspectives? I think they'd have to like talk talk to that person about um, what they learned during that three years. I mean, it would be an incredibly brave thing to do to put that on a CV. Um, a lot of people have expressed concerns about increased sexual harassment, um, which women kind of already deal with in a lot of workplaces. So kind of putting that out there, um, people have said, kind of makes them feel more scared that they'd be more susceptible. But I think listen, listen to what that person got out of sex work and why they included it. I only include things on my CV that I think I learned things from. So I think just making, making space for for someone to tell you, you know, like, well, this is what I learned from it, and this is what I learned from that that I can bring to this job. It's not easy to unlearn things that you've kind of thought all your life, um, but I think just kind of listening to people who have these real-life experiences is a really important way to start doing that. I did want to um, say, because because we mentioned that, like, yes, there are, like, a lot of people um, who are doing uni rather than people who are coming from abject poverty, that um, there are people too who um, came from really impoverished background, and maybe you know, th- maybe their parent was also a sex worker, um, and maybe there is, is addiction and everything. Um, but those people still, they're not, they're not going to benefit um, from people taking away their rights. Yeah, and so like, of course, these people exist, but they deserve rights just like you know the middle class uni student who's also doing it to um, make ends meet. And I think if, a, if someone looked at, um, you know, someone who maybe has a, is struggling with addiction and also doing sex work and looks at that and, and says, kind of, you know, sex work is to blame or sex work is bad because this person with an addiction is doing it, the instinct is to attack the work rather than to attack a system that doesn't have maybe an alternative um, for a person struggling with addiction where, like, people with addiction are put into prisons instead of given other sort of like society safety nets so I would say like if someone's instinct is is to criticize this person for doing sex work um, that they really should shift their criticism to a society that isn't um, providing for them in another way um, and I imagine that most people going into sex work that they weren't perfectly normal started doing sex work and then they had drug addiction problems they probably had the addiction problems long before they decided to go um, down that profession and and I think that a question that we asked is like if sex work is the only job that they felt they could do like why is that why is there only kind of one job or one industry that caters to people who have different needs um, who might struggle with addiction um, or you know chronic illness or or any sort of you know and I put this in quotes but like not normal situation like there there shouldn't just be one option. Um, so instead of critiquing that one option, I think the focus would be better shifted to providing more options for people to be well. Um, you sort of mentioned it earlier in terms of the, the money side of things, but would there be any other main findings that you would say would be the main take-homes from what you've done so far? Yeah, actually, I would say that there's a lot of anti-capitalist sentiment. So I think I think it's just going to end up being a bit of a critique on the wider labor market, but also just a bit of an anthem for workers' rights in general because sex workers' rights globally 
have always been in danger and in New Zealand they're a lot better but workers rights in all industries are are constantly very precarious so I, th I think I think it's going to be a lot about that um, I'm going to be using a Marxist feminist analysis yeah yeah just looking at worker safety uh, workers rights worker training um, rates cuts from management work-life balance, job satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you're talking about any industry, really. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and I think that's pretty important is that even though you know, I've, I've been talking to people who are working in a deeply stigmatized and previously criminalized industry, a lot of what they're saying could be applied a lot more widely. Um, so that pretty much wraps up our conversation. Thanks heaps for your time, Peyton. Before you go, where can we find out more about you? Um, yeah, so I think if you Google me, um, my University of Otago page comes up. Um, so that's just P-E-Y-T-O-N. And then my last name's Bond, like James Bond, um, unfortunately, for jokes made throughout my life. Um, so it's just B-O-N-D. The email is Peyton.Bond at otago.ac.nz. Um, and I'd love, to, I'd love to chat about this. Um, so I would love for people to get in touch. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. You can find us on Twitter at NZ underscore pod or Instagram at NZ underscore pod. If you're feeling extra generous, please give us five stars on the podcast app. Kia ora.